Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 29 is where we are today. We'll continue to work through this prophetic book. Uh, Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. Uh, In fact, only the book of Psalms is quoted more. Um, So Isaiah has a lot to say. Isaiah, we know, is proclaiming the word and the will of God to Judah, mainly, southern kingdom. Remember, by this time, the kingdom, the 12 tribes have been split in two, two separate kingdoms. The northern kingdom, we know, is Israel, also known as Ephraim, uh, made up of 10 tribes. And the southern kingdom, which is made up of Benjamin and Judah, is known as Judah, Israel and Judah. The capital city of the northern kingdom is Samaria. The capital city of the southern kingdom, Judah, is Jerusalem. Isaiah is preaching under the ministry or under the kingship of four kings. We know that from chapter 1. There's King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. We know that when Isaiah showed up on the scene, Uzziah is the king. He was a good king, prosperous king, became prideful. The people became prideful. And Isaiah is preaching against their, their, their pride, um, calling people to repentance, to be humble, to be broken, uh, to recognize their covenant-breaking sin of, of, of pride, of the fear of man, of abusive leadership. Uh, they were oppressing, uh, oppressing the poor. And they were just failing to trust the Lord. Remember uh, something, that the Old Testament prophets are more of a foreteller, a foreteller preaching and declaring the word of God than a foreteller. In other words, telling the future. So foreteller's just proclaiming uh, rather than just telling what's going to happen. And that's what Isaiah was doing. Isaiah was preaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. We know that uh, Isaiah was in the throne room of God the year Uzziah died, lifted up high and seen the holiness and the beauty, and get a glimpse of the holiness and beauty of God. Of course, he was crushed by God's holiness, crushed by God's beauty. But in grace and mercy, God showed to Isaiah, send one of the angels to pick up a burning coal, touched his lips, and said, you are healed, really. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Isaiah recognizes his sin, recognizes God's holiness, recognizes God's mercy and grace and forgiveness, and then he's sent to tell the people about God's goodness and mercy and grace and their sin. And we know, and I just want to show you this. um, Let me go back. Do I have a map, um, Joe? I think I have a map somewhere. If you could put that up, that would be good. I just, I'm going to do this one more time just so you can wrap your head around the context. King, Uz, uh, King Ahaz um, from Judah is on the throne. They're, 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 they're prosperous. Uh, they're, 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 they're sinful, but they're growing and they're prosperous, excuse me, under King Uzziah. Uh, Ahaz comes in. He's not a good, very good king. And what's happening right now is, what, let me see if this, oh, I got to turn it on. Yep which Ricky reminded me, but I didn't listen. Um, So I just want to give you the context, okay? Assyria is the national power. They're the big gurus of the nations, and they're growing in strength. Israel, the northern kingdom, Israel, and Syria joined forces together, and they said, "Let's, let's join together, and we could stop the Assyrian army. We could stop them from conquering us, and it's better to have two than, than, than be alone. They push up on Judah, and say, you join us. Judah says, I'm not joining you. Uh, we're not, we're not going to join forces and fight with you against the Assyrian army. Isaiah comes to Judah king, 
Ahaz and says, listen, God told me to tell you, don't be afraid. Don't fear man, okay? I'm going to take care of you. Don't let your heart be faint. But he doesn't listen. Ahaz doesn't listen. And instead, what he does is, whoop, let me go back. Could you put that up again one, one more time, Joe? Please? Sorry about that, buddy. Instead, Judah makes an alliance with Assyria instead. Doesn't join Israel, doesn't join Syria, but joins and says to Assyria, don't hurt us. <laughs> we'll, 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 let's be friends. And then we see over the next several chapters in the book of Isaiah, God disciplines his people to making this foolish decision to make an alliance with people rather than trust him. That's what this is all about. And throughout the process, we have seen over and over, see it again today, without the process, that God is faithful to his people. Even though they are faithless, God remains faithful. God will judge them. God will discipline them. And God will judge the nations. But he keeps his promise over and over. We have seen in the sin and rebellion of God's people. We have seen the love and the grace of God. That one day God will bring together a remnant of people, his people. Their sins will be washed away. Salvation will be for all people of all nations, tongues, and tribes. Isaiah is clear on that. They'll be reunited to a God, to their God. They'll have an eternal kingdom. One day a son will come. We saw that his name is Emmanuel, God with us. We saw the promise given to David, and Isaiah says that son is going to come, the one that's promised to David. The government will be upon his shoulders, chapter 9. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness forevermore. We see that. All the promises of this remnant people being washed of their sins, being saved, redeemed, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why it's the gospel according to Isaiah. Christ is the king, the son of David. He is the root of Jesse. He is all over this book. His substitutionary sacrifice, his cleansing and washing of God's people are all throughout this book. The gospel according to Isaiah. How God glorifies himself the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It is the hope of the Messiah, the promised one, where the new world will come, sin and sorrow will be vanished, sin will be forever forgiven, and God's people will enjoy their God forever and ever. Even last week in chapter 28, if you have your Bibles open, we saw that Jesus is the foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, saw that, a precious cornerstone, chapter 28, verse 16, a sure foundation. We see it picked up, that same language is picked up in the New Testament pointing to Jesus. Whoever believes in him will not be in haste, will not have to fear, will not have to run. Last week we saw a change, a little change of context. If you remember last week, we got into chapter 28, we said time is moving on. The Assyrian army is on its way and has putting a beaten on Israel. And Syria. The Assyrian army is marching against Israel, marching against Syria. And at that point, they, they wind up in 721 BC actually conquering Israel. 
The Syrian army conquers Israel in 721 B.C. And then they head directly toward Jerusalem. We said last week that it was around the time that they were conquering Israel, that a Syrian army is conquering Israel, and we saw God's word to Ephraim, to Israel in chapter 28. As we get to chapter 29, most commentators think that it's a little bit further along. Not so much the 721 B.C. where Assyria conquers Israel. Now we're getting close to 701 where Assyria has finished beating up on Israel, the northern kingdom. And now they're on the doorsteps of attacking Jerusalem. Okay? And the Jerusalem king now is a man by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a one of the best kings of Judah. But Hezekiah will make an allegiance, not with Assyria this time. That didn't work. Hezekiah will make an allegiance with Egypt. We'll see that over the next two chapters, but that's, that's the background. Their Assyrian army has conquered Israel, marching toward Jerusalem, and God has a word to say to his prophet. Okay? Again, with another allegiance, we'll see that coming up next week. And um, you, could, you could see that at the end of chapter 37 and 38 and 39, uh, excuse me, of Isaiah 37, 38, 39. Um, you can see that as well. We'll get to that when we get there. But meanwhile, here's the, our outline in chapter 29. The disciplined work of God, the wondrous ways of God, and finally the sovereign will of God. So that's our outline, very simple. The one, disciplined work of God, number one. Chapter 29, verses 1 through 8, hear now the word of the Lord. And if you notice, chapter 29, if you have your Bibles, hopefully you do, the word ah, again, is written, or you might have woe. It is that lamentation of grief and and death, a warning of impending judgment, those who rebel, that a funeral is coming, woe. Chapter 29, verse 1, woe, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, lest the feast run their ground. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be mourning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But, verse 5, The multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder, with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. When a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating, and awakens with his hunger not satisfied. Or, as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. So as I mentioned, after speaking to Ephraim, mostly to the northern kingdom Israel, Ephraim, in chapter 28, Isaiah now turns to his own kinsmen. And his remarks now are directly to Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, the capital of the southern kingdom. And in classic fashion of Isaiah, he he speaks a word of chastisement and judgment, and it's mixed with hope. 
discipline mixed with hope. I mean, how many of us have learned, we talked about this in our community group, valuable lessons through hardship, through, through bad decisions, right? Nobody ever made a bad decision, right? Right, we make bad decisions when we learn lessons. How many of us learned about how idolatry has captured our hearts when the thing that we love and worship is taken from us? But then we look back, right? We, 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 we look back and we see the hand of God. Uh, we, see the, we see that his hand was merciful. We see that he is kind and gracious and he is moving us away from those things to him. Well, Jerusalem this is the city of David, the city of peace. It had become rebellious. It has become faithless. And they're going to experience the the, the hand of God that that cuts, then heals. Ariel, look at our text, means Ulta Hearth, H-E-A-R-T-H. You can cross-reference that with Ezekiel 43. You'll see that. Jerusalem was a place where God chose in his sovereignty, to meet with his people. God may gave them explicit instructions on how the temple was going to be built, what needed to be done, and how the worship was going to take place. We just don't come and worship any way we want. God revealed himself to us on how we ought to worship him. And it was on the altar, the surface, in which the fire was lit to consume the sacrifices, where sacrifices were burned and within the temple complex. It was, it was a place where sinners come and worship a holy God through substitutionary sacrifice. It was also in Jerusalem where the festivals took place. Add year to year, lest the feasts run their round. Isaiah's being cynical here, I think, talking about the year-round Worship events, the festivals and the celebrations that were celebrated, they were, they were beautiful, but they had come to nothing. They became empty. Isaiah is saying is the, the place of worship, the, the, the place of, of sacrifices and all the festivals that continue day in and day out in God's city will really not help them at all. God is going to come and discipline his children. The very privilege that the Israelites, that the Judah and, and the people of God had, the very privilege that was bestowed upon them there in Jerusalem, in the temple, has become their peril. Verse 2 is distress. As soon will show them that they're not secure simply because they are God's people. Celebrate your feast. Go ahead. It's not going to help. Notice there's no mention of Assyria. You know, he doesn't mention, Isaiah doesn't mention the army here at all. He does it in in, in a roundabout way. Because Isaiah wants God's people to know that God is not just a mere spectator in the drama unfolding in history. That's, That's for us as well. God will be laying siege to Jerusalem. Even though it is Assyria at the gate. God's going to bring them, look, moaning and sadness, sorrow and lamentation. Verse 2 and 3, bring distress. He will encamp and besiege the city with towers. He will, he will raise siege works against you. David had encamped Jerusalem when he, when he conquered it in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 5. God was dwelling there, but now God is saying, I'm going to encamp her. 
Syrian army would use the great big wheel towers. They had them as part of their army, part of their, you know, their, the, the stuff that they would use and battering rams. But God is saying, no, it's, it's me. Ultimately, I'm behind all this. You will be to me, look what he says, like an aerial. You, you'll be to me that burning place where God's wrath is, is, is satisfied. The city will become the altar. You'll become like an aerial. And the result was devastating. In fact, verse 4 tells us that their voices will be changed. Look what it says. Like the muttering of a ghost, the muttering of the dead, like from the dust of the ground. It was this confidence and, 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 and boisterous arrogance. We are God's people. We are in Jerusalem. We are, we are safe. And it says God's going, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's going to be only a whisper. Only a whisper. Verse 5 through 8. We see this sieging army come against Jerusalem, will themselves be humbled. And this is, verse 5 is one of those, you can circle it, one of those but God moments. We see it all throughout Scripture. Devastation, hardship, discipline, but God. And verse 5 through 8, we see this army that's coming against God's people, them, them, them themselves humbled to the dust by the God of the universe. In an instant, verse 5, suddenly God will break out powerfully against them with thunder and earthquake and noise, whirlwind and tempest and a a flame of devouring fire. And once again, God uses the Assyrian army to teach a lesson to his people and then turns around and says, you are judged like dust and chaff. At any moment, he alone frustrates the schemes. He's all, he, he alone is the one who opposes the people against his people. Like just a dream, verse 7 and 8. It'll be a dream to these, this army who thinks they can conquer. It'll be a dream. A night vision, quickly there and then vanishing. The enemy dreams, look what it says. They're, they're conquering, but they're worn out. Their soul is craving. They're running around for water. Uh, the, the dream of conquering and, and, and taking God's people and destroying them, just wetting their lips, it's not, it's not gonna happen. It's good. They're gonna be unsatisfied. There have been a lot of people in the history of the world uh, dreaming about annihilating God's people, right? And only, only to find themselves rudely awakened as their dreams evaporate for God, as God stands up for his people. It's that way then, it's that way now. Jesus said, I will build my church, right? I'm not going to try, but I will. I am going to build my church. It's not a construction site. <laughs> when he says, I will going to build my church, he means the gathering of his people. I will build my people, my church, my family, my body. And the gates of hell will not, cannot avail against it, prevail against it. Now the truth is, family, the truth is this. There are those in our life, there are those in our life that see our faith and our trust in God, but hope for our demise. The people that don't understand, you believe the Bible, you're standing on the word of God. That's your conviction? That's what you believe? Yeah, that's what we believe. They they would love to see our demise. It's not so much that they are attacking us personally. We don't fight against flesh and blood. But they're attacking our faith, our God. 
And, and I think it's really important to remember that when hard times comes and difficult times and, and people turn their back on us because of our faith, and they will, that God is working for us. God's working for you today if that's going on in your life. Seven times I checked in the New Testament that Paul and Peter say, stand firm in the faith. Why would they say that? Unless we need to hear it. Stand firm in the faith. Don't let others distract you from your walk. And, and there are those that may, that may be close to you, that may love you, and may not even recognize what they're doing, but they're trying to take you off of that path. Stand firm in the faith. When we are being chastised by God, we the redeemed. When we're being chastised, when we're under persecution, when we're under difficulties, the redeemed must always remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up on the cross for us all, how will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things, all things, all things that we need to stand firm? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ, the one who died. More than that, raised to the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Some of you need to hear that this morning. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword, death. That's, right? No, in all these things, we are more, we are more than conquerors through what? Through him who loves us. I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, things present, nor things to come, powers, heights, depth, anything in all creation. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Just let that soak in. If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ this morning, if you're in Christ, God never gives you what you deserve. By his grace, he gives us what we need. As redeemed children of God, the gospel assures us that we can trust God and we can make large allowances for the full range of which ways in which he works. And we can humbly surrender to the deep work of renewal, the deep work of, of transformation that he's trying to do in our life in Christ. The disciplined work of God. Next, we see the wondrous ways of God, verses 9 through 14. Astonish yourself, verse 9, and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, covered your heads, the seers, and the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, it is sealed. And when they give the book to the one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, where their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things, 
with his people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Isaiah says, okay, here's the reason, guys, ladies, nation, why the judgment will come. Blindness, hardness of hearts. As I said, King Ahaz was not a good king. King Ahaz is not a good king. And there's, there, there, was a, there was a general apostasy, a turning from God. But now we have Hezekiah, and he's a good king. If you read uh, 2 Kings, and you read, as I said, the end of chapters uh, 37, 39, Hezekiah was a good king. He was a king that tore down altars and, 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 and places of idolatry that was going on in Jerusalem. Isaiah, the king, Hezekiah, the king, uh, sought the Lord. Most commentators say, well, the king is seeking the Lord. What is going on here in, in the worship of God's people? And, and I think most commentators say, you know what? The king's heart was made right, but the people were not there. They, they were, they were, they, there was an outward sense of worship, but there was no genuine conversion with the God's people. And so Isaiah is dealing with the people whose lips say one thing, but their hearts are, are totally somewhere else. And notice that the section begins with blindness and the inability to understand God's instruction. Look what it says. Blindness, drunkenness, not with strong drink, not with wine. But, but what he's saying is drunkenness in the sense of being insensible, being numb, being unaware of what God is doing. Right? When you're falling down, you don't really know what's going on around you. And one would think that they see, they just saw the mercies of God being spoken about, uh, um, you, know, like, you know, like stepping in and destroying the enemies of God. You would, they would respond with, oh, we got to trust you and praise you, but not here. They act like they're blind and they're deaf. And therefore, God hardens their, hardens their heart, increases their blindness even deeper so that they would reap the consequences And God says, look what he says. He says, he will pour out, verse 10, for the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of what? Deep sleep. Spiritual blindness. Yes, they're responsible for their choices. And yet we see here God turning them over to their own sinful desires. The very means of spiritual enlightenment and discernment are removed. Look what he says. As closed your eyes of the prophets and covered your heads of the seers, both used synonymously that God is raising up people to make his will known, to receive and to, to understand and to hear the word of God. But they're in deep sleep. Verse 11 and 12, it kind of brings it, you know, driving it even more home. It's sealed. <laughs> the vision is sealed. There, there are people in Judah, in Jerusalem, that have been skilled in the law of God, and the prophecy to understand the things of God, the priests and, and the prophets. But when they get this scroll, it's sealed. They're like, all right, let's give it to somebody else. When somebody else gets the scroll, they don't understand. The common people can't read. And the point that is, God is saying is uh, that his plans is being hidden from his people. They are, they're spiritually dull. Both the literate and the illiterate doesn't understand, will not understand. And now we get to the real reason. Look at with me at verse 13. Empty worship. The people in Jerusalem were performing these, these religious rituals and services. And they were declaring. They were singing, I'm sure. They were mouthing. They were lip syncing. They were, they were doing all that stuff. But it was only external. True worship. True worship. 
in which the heart, the place of true worship, takes place was, was far from God's people. The heart was far from God. Jesus himself in the New Testament applied that passage to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the Bible-thumping, Bible-knowledge, Bible-holding leaders in his day. They worshiped God very clearly in the New Testament. They worshiped God very meticulously, very meticulously. Matthew 15, Mark 9. They were saying all the right things. They were doing all the right things. And like here in verse 13, their fear was a product of the doctrine and commandments of man. It was Ray Ortland that said, when form replaces freshness, when rote replaces reality, worship treats God as less than the living God and he is offended, end quote. Listen, going through the motions, going through the motions of worship without a vital Daily relationship of spirit-empowered, gospel-centered, word-saturated, trust and obedience to God turns into traditionalism, ritual observance, a heartfelt desire to, 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 to enact with the living God is not on the heart. Going through the motion of worship without a vital daily relationship Spirit-empowered, gospel-centered, word-saturated, and trust and obedience to God turn our worship into tradition and ritual observance. Not that heartfelt worship of the living God. They feared him, but it was just a command of man. Something they learned, something they heard, something they're responding to just with the mind, not with the heart. It was not a fear that proceeded from the heart, as, as Proverb tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And such fear is characterized by a devotion to God. You know, when Jesus spoke these words to the Pharisees, um, in, in that day, the Pharisees had these requirements. They wind up writing them. It was an oral requirement. They wind up writing in what's called a Mishnah. Um, and they had these oral traditions that were put down that were really... They were actually more meticulous, um, you know, uh, more, not only more meticulous, but, you know, very detailed, long-winded than the Word of God. And they opposed this on the people. And Christ says, that, you know what, that, by, by following the commandments of man, you make uh, uh, the Word of God vain, uh, useless. Their, their traditions became uh, equal probably even more so than Scripture. Detailed and concrete, written moral laws written by man does not negate the authority of Scripture. It got so bad, listen, even if you try to do something like that, it'll wind up like this. It'll be above Scripture. And that's what was happening. And although there was no oral tradition of the Mishnah in, in Isaiah's day, something was going on that the Lord saw that the hearts of the people were away from him because they were doing things the way they wanted. They worshipped the way they wanted and their hearts were not with them. They regarded this outward form as being sufficient. Irrespective of, of the attitude of the heart. But a genuine, a true biblical fear of God lead one, lead one, leads one to a heartfelt devotion 
to God. Genuine, true biblical fear of God. Worship is supposed to be a time when we enter into the the praise and the worship and the joy of being in God's presence. Family, doesn't the gospel, doesn't the gospel teach us to lovingly fear the Lord? Doesn't the gospel teach us that he is holy and pure and that we, he has all the glory belongs to him? Isn't the gospel teach us of his infinite beauty and worth and surpassing greatness? Isn't it the gospel that we learn that God is holy and perfect? And isn't it the gospel that we learn that when we stand before a holy God like Isaiah, we are crushed? But isn't it the gospel on the cross of Jesus Christ where justice was served and love was demonstrated? It is the gospel that teaches us that there is an immeasurable gravity to the holy God who is just. And justice must be satisfied. And yet, The gospel teaches us of the voluntary, substitutionary sacrifice of Christ who bore the penalty of our sin, absorbed the just wrath that we deserve, whose atonement forgives sinners, who lived a life of perfection that's required to be reconciled to God and it was given to wretched sinners like you and me as a gift by faith. That's the gospel. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who would stand, O Lord? Who would stand? If God called you today to give an account for your sin, you would, I would be undone. But, verse 4 of Psalm 130, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There is forgiveness when we stand before your holiness and perfection. We are dust, but with you there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. Listen to this quote from Michael Reeves I found this week. Listen to this. He says this, Divine forgiveness and our justification by faith alone turn our natural dread of God as sinners into the fearful, trembling adoration of beloved children. I love that quote. Divine forgiveness and our justification by faith alone, being made right with God by faith alone, turn our natural dread or terror of God as sinners into the fearful, trembling adoration of beloved children. End quote. The traditions of men have become external, And the gospel says what? We worship God with the inner power driven by the spirit, proper reverence and joy, all that God is, all that God has done, and we are passionately pursuing the love of God through the gospel. God didn't see that here. God didn't see that. And therefore, God says, I'm going to do a wondrous thing. I'm going to do something marvelous for you. Verse 14. Therefore, your heart's far from me. Behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. Wonder upon wonder, he says. And the wisdom of the wise men shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. Old Testament language. Miraculous work of God. 
wondrous work of God, mostly spoken about in the Old Testament about the deliverance of God's people as he worked miraculously and wondrously in the deliverance of God's people. And now he's saying, you know what? That same work is not going to go very good for you today. (laughs) The prophet's language is strong. The wise men will perish. Not just the wisdom of of, of Judah, but the men themselves will perish. Maybe then, maybe then, Maybe when we're done trying to figure things out ourselves, maybe when we're done kind of just trying to say, you know what, I'm wise, I know all things, maybe then we're ready to turn to God. Again, the gospel speaks to the wisdom of the world. 1 Corinthians. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. If you're here this morning in the word of the gospel, that Christ Jesus died for your sins, and was buried in three days, rose from the dead. It is folly to you, is because you're perishing. But, but to us, and hopefully to you, that are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. For it is written, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. There is the one, where's the one who is wise? Where is, the, where is has God not made that foolish person the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. If you think you know it all. It pleased God through the folly of what preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. But those who are being called to salvation, Jew and Greek, Christ. The power of God, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians, the extraordinary and wondrous intervention of God's grace, of God's mercy through the Holy Spirit then becomes acceptable, acts of worship, God honoring, God loving, God worshiping, treasuring, proper fearing him. It'll change our thoughts, it'll change our actions. He gives us divine wisdom, he renews our hearts. That's God's will. That's God's wisdom. And lastly, look at the sovereign will of God. Verses 15 through 16. If you notice again, it begins in verse 15 with the word ah or woe. Woe, ah, you had, you who hide deep from the Lord, your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And the thing made should say of its maker, he didn't make us, he didn't make me. Or the thing formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Woe, the prophet again. Now he's saying, look, woe to you people who think that God doesn't know what's going on. (laughs) As As if you can go deep in hiding. You know, like Adam who ran and hid. I'm safe behind this rock. He can't see me. That might be the the, the pinnacle of foolishness, right? Human foolishness. To think that we we could have our plans, we could do our deeds, and it's possible to conceive and carry out our plans and deeds, and yet the Lord doesn't know. That was a turning upside down. Exalting human wisdom, excluding the divine is, is, is really the reversal, the turning around of what's good and what's right. 
denying the Lord's sovereignty and wisdom. And they attributed it to themselves. Hebrews, if you remember, we went through the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. No creature is hidden from God's sight. All things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He says, and then he says, look, the, the, those people, they got it all together. They're, they're, they're turning around. They're, 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 they're saying that, look, look what it says, verse 17. No, let's go back. Look, look back at 16. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, the thing made should say to its maker, he did not make me. <laughs> These stubborn people have forgotten that they're the clay. God is the one who is all-knowing. He's the creator. He will expose. In fact, the word formed comes from Genesis and talks as God, as the creator, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God formed man out of the dust from the ground, and that word comes from, the same word here, potter. The word formed and potter have the same Hebrew background. He's saying there's, there's a radical difference between the potter who's forming the clay, who made the clay and who formed the clay, than those who are the clay. And y'all think that you're the one forming it when God is the one. He's the maker. And they're denying the reality of the superiority and supremacy of God. Verse 17. It is not yet a little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field. Here's one of those but God moments again. Judgment, discipline, praise the Lord, right? But God. Verse 17. It is not yet a little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field. And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book. You you were dark before, couldn't hear before. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, the scoffers cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word... Make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate. And with an empty plea, turn aside him who is in the right. Now, there's going to come a day. That's, that's what the prophet's saying. I believe it's the millennial kingdom. Some believe it's the eternal kingdom. But there's going to come a day when the Lord will demonstrate his sovereignty and his wisdom and reverse the conditions of the proud and the humble. That's, that's what the forest and the field means. That's what that means. There's going to come a day that the blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew chapter 5. There's going to come a day. Andrew Davison, exalting Jesus. Some of you guys have that commentary. He says this. The chapter ends with a cascade of gracious promises from the great physician. God will work a full deliverance for his chosen people to rescue them from their cold hearts. God promises to level the forest of Lebanon, the humbling of human pride, and turn it instead into a fertile field for his glory, end quote. And when that reversal takes place, look what it says. The renewal will take place. The deaf will hear the scroll, the book. They'll come out of their gloom. They'll come out of their darkness. Their eyes that were blind will now see. Now, that's going to happen in the future, but isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that what happened when you receive Christ, when you confess your sins, when you repent of your sins and you believe on Jesus? You go from spiritual dullness to spiritual and spiritual darkness to spiritual enlightenment, discernment. 
We're no longer blinded by the God of this age, small g. We're no longer kept from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel in Christ who is the image of God. No, the Holy Spirit works this miraculous work in our life and our hearts, the Spirit works in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. In fact, the meek, he says, the humble, the helpless, shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? In that day when we just humbly submit, when, when we humble ourselves, we acknowledge the fact that we were living for ourselves. We want to live our own way and do our own thing. We want our own, our own salvation, our own justification, and it's gotten nowhere that day. When you come to the end of yourself, God comes to you. When you come to the end of yourself, God comes to you. Listen, God's not going to allow you to join him in his salvation efforts. Right? It doesn't work that way. There's nothing you can add. The work of the gospel will be rejoicing when it's the sole work of Christ alone. When you come empty-handed with nothing to offer, with all your sin and rebellion, you come to God and he looks at you and he says, come, you are completely and eternally and fully forgiven. There is great joy. The angel, remember in Luke 2, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. This is how meekness and humility and helplessness is connected to joy. When you see your sin, when you realize there's nothing you can do, you are completely, completely helpless. And Jesus says, I love you, turn to me. I died so you can live. I, I, I paid the penalty so that you can be pardoned. I bore your punishment and wrath so that you can be forgiven. That will bring great joy. Look what Isaiah says, he goes on. The poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. When the gospel grips your heart and you realize how poor and bankrupt your soul really is, but when that same gospel grips your heart and you realize that you're now in union with Christ, it makes you rich. Paul looked at all that he had in this world and he said, what? I count it as what? Rubbish, dung, that I may know Christ. To be found in him, not with my own righteousness, because I have none. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God to man, depends on faith. Here Isaiah says, there will be joy in the Lord. Those who experience the salvation in the Lord will experience great joy. And also, not only because of the gospel, but because of their deliverance. Look at verse 20, 20 and 21. Salvation is consistent in their deliverance of the oppressor. The tyrant will come to an end. The scorner will cease. Remember, we've been saying over and over that when God's people see the destruction of God's enemy, it should invoke on us a, a word of praise and, and a, a word of worship and, and, and a word of trust. Look what God has done to the enemies, that we, be, we behold his beauty, his glory, his promises, his greatness. And finally, this fresh joy is connected to, look, verse 22, the covenant with Abraham. Therefore, verse 22, 
Thus says the Lord. Therefore, after all I've said, not only 29, I think chapter 28 too. Chapter 20, after all of that, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Now, the word ransom is not mentioned in the Genesis account with Abraham. I think most commentators believe, and which I do as well, what they're talking about is when Abraham was rescued, when Abraham was redeemed and brought out from his pagan worship, out from the pagan land, out from his pagan environment, when God called him from the land of Ur to come out to a place I will show you, and he makes a covenant with him. Not only with him, with the house of Jacob, also known as Israel, And this commitment and this covenant that God makes with Abraham, he will see it through to completion. For the Lord who began a good work in the redemption through Abraham will bring it to completion, chapter 1, verse 6. And look what he talks about. It's not only the redemption of Abraham, but we see the covenant has to do with his children. Jacob, verse 22. His children, verse 23. You know what? When God came to Abraham in Genesis and made a covenant with him, he told him, I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to dishonor and curse those who dishonor you. And all the families of the earth will be blessed. He takes them outside and he says, look at the stars. See them? Can you number them? No. (laughs) So shall your offspring be. And then the Bible says beautifully, That Abraham believed God. Abraham believed, trusted, rested, and, 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 and put his faith in the Lord. And he, God, counted it to Abraham as righteousness. Faith alone through the work of God alone. And God's hand is working, and his children are, are, are being blessed. And I think the people, I think. When he talks about the children here in verse 23, he's talking about all of God's people. They will sanctify his name. To sanctify the name means that we're sanctifying the name. We're setting apart in our hearts the name of God, which is the character of all that he is, the nature of all that he is. The Holy One of Israel. (laughs) The Holy One of Israel. He is the God of all gods. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's the God of all God. He is utterly distinct from all creation, separate from all evil. And we stand in awe of Him. Anybody know that old song? I stand in awe of Him. A strong expression of reverence, acknowledging the awe-inspiring absoluteness of divine sovereignty and majesty. A a trembling reverence. Not terror, but awe-inspiring. He's a source of hope. Verse 24 to close. We'll wrap this up. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. You have deliverance. You have praise resulting in understanding. One commentator writes, life must be lived in the light of wisdom. The proper course is to submit to the designs of God's timetable. To abstain from self-will and do-it-yourself approach to life. So let me, end, let me end this way. Keep this, keep this chapter open. I'll, I'll call the band up. 
and, and, and I want you to track with me here, okay? There are two things we can do today. There are two ways that we can respond to the Word of God. When, if you're here this morning and you're not trusting God, you're, you're seeking alliances, you're, you're, you're looking in the wrong places, you're going through the religious motions, uh, don't dig in your heels in your own agenda, pretending that God doesn't know what's going on, what plans you've made, what's your purposes, what's happening. Don't think that God doesn't know things that are contrary to his word, to his work, to his will, to his ways. Living like God doesn't know, ignoring him. Deceived into thinking that God doesn't know best. Honoring God with lips, but our hearts are far from him. Or, Humbly accept the fact that God's in charge. He's sovereign over the world. He knows what's best. And in the gospel, God is for us, not against us. Trust in his unfailing promises. Trust in the transforming work of the gospel. Trust in the work of the spirit in your heart. Trust that he will change your darkness and your blindness into light. That's our hope, family. When you have the scripture, when you have the word of God, when you acknowledge the sovereignty, the work and the will of God, everything in life changes. It's a biblical worldview, not what the garbage they're trying to feed down your brain, to feed down your throat, and to, to, to twist your brain. We look at the scriptures and we believe God. We believe God. We stand in awe of him. We treat him as holy. We stand in reverence of the gospel and we see our sin is... is, is Just terrible. But we see the cross and we see God's love and his mercy and his grace. And may that stir our affections this morning. And, And sometimes, you know what? It may be through pain. It may be through hardship. I don't know what God is doing in your life. But if you belong to him, he's working in your life for your good. He's working in your life for good. So we're going to sing from the depths of woe. I say this often. I'm going to say it again. It's not just words on a screen. From the depths of woe, I cry to you, Lord, hear me. Although my, my iniquities does mark our secret sins and misdeeds dark, who shall stand before thee? Thy love and thy grace alone will prevail. My hope is in the Lord. Let that be our heart's cry to our God. Let's, let's humble ourselves before him and worship him. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Can, can we ask you now, Holy Spirit, to work in our hearts that we, as we sing and respond, it will be of the heart. It will not be just words on a screen, something mental, assess, uh, 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 a mental understanding, but Lord, a heartfelt devotion as we sing to you, God. Empower us by your spirit. Help us to see the beauty of Christ. Let us, let us see our sin, our brokenness, but let us see our Savior who is greater than that. As we worship you in spirit and truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.